You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. <laughs> Primal Radio, we're back once again, Tommy. What is up, brother? Yeah, so I've just spent the day getting a tattoo done. No way! So I've done two of these sessions, like five or six hours sat on the table. And both times he was like, don't worry, you won't feel the thing because I've got this special numbing cream. Anyway, both times it hasn't (laughs) arrived. Special numbing cream for a tattoo? What the fuck is going on here? It's the modern way, so you can basically tolerate the pain. Anyway, both times he hasn't had it in stock. And I've just had to sit there and sort of grin and bear it. And it's kind of fine at first. And then, like, the last hour or so, it's just, like, you're kind of... However did you survive, Tommy? Yeah, I know, I know. Is this to be revealed, this tattoo? Is it a secret? Yeah, it's kind of... Well, martial arts, Japanese influence. It's one of those Tanya masks from, you know, the Japanese influence with a skull. It's half of both of those. And then some sort of Japanese influence flowers around it. And, you know, it's it's, it's all going to build out. Probably cost me a small fortune. Is this the one that's going to be on your ass? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, right. Let's get back oh, wait, to business. <laughs> that is business, man. What the fuck is going on with my co-host? Uh, all right, Tom, we got a really great guest, today, man. You need to do the introduction. You're the professional. You're the you're the Ed McMahon of Primal Radio. So uh, let's see what we got, brother. Yes. Yeah, so so uh, this week's guest. Well, two stories. One, number of people that I know that kind of like are based in the West Midlands, like Kevin Began, have worked with this guy and, and, you know, recommended things that he's been hosting. He's clearly an influential guy in that area based in Redditch. The other element is you and I were talking on one of our shows recently about 52 blocks, which I hadn't heard right. of, which is like the prison-based fighting system. Correct. And I hadn't heard of it at the time. And then I kind of got off that and I was like, oh, in my events, I've been invited to a 52 block seminar hosted by this week's guest so i got chatting to him and we were talking about whether i could get like a 52 blocks guest on the show and then the more and more i've kind of like seen of his stuff that he's been doing uh, this guy just trains everything and there's, there's a long list which we'll come to in the show really interesting stuff influential guy so uh, without further ado welcome to the show tommy joe moore good evening good evening tommy how are you brother Solid, solid introduction there. I, I like to talk about tattoos. I'm just back from Japan, and I enjoyed my first piece of casual tattoo-based racism. Every time I jumped into a hot pool without my tattoos covered, about 50 Japanese men got out and jumped into the one next to me. <laughs> so massive, massive cultural taboo. So really? not just the uh, Yakuza stuff you've heard of, but criminals there right. used to just get tattoos. So you'd, you'd be tattooed as a criminal. It's a massive thing, and all, all the old fellas would get directly out of the pool soon as they catch a glimpse of my tattoo. So I'm getting a full piece done very soon, but I decided to keep them minimum before Japan. Now I'm going to go all in. <laughs> That's so cool. I did not know that. What do they think is going to happen? Is it just, like you said, just because you were a bad guy, supposedly, on their point of view? Yeah, exactly. I mean, being bald and having a beard, as you know, makes you a bad guy in most places. It, it does. That's, that's how we like to rock this look, brother. Yeah, as soon as the hair goes, all the hero roles go. You're done. You're set for life. <laughs> You're a constant bad guy. What were you doing in Japan? So it's been a kind of a lifelong wish to go to Japan. I've always wanted to go. I mean, I've always loved martial arts. I've always loved the martial culture. 
of Japan. You know, I, I love how embedded it is into everything Japanese. So I absolutely loved it. I've always wanted to go. It costs a fucking fortune to, to right. go there. So uh, I thought, this is the time now. Otherwise, I will be an old man by the time I can afford it again. Right. So I went there. Went there for a number of weeks. Travelled all around. One of the best bits of it stayed in the last samurai house in Kyoto. So it's the only remaining samurai manor house. And it's got things like trick doors. So the door is shorter from the outside. So if you try and come in waving a sword, you can't. That's so cool. Did you have that planned when you went over to go to that place? Or did, when you were there, did you just happen to discover it? Some no, I had, I had it planned. So I went for a, uh, a kind of a kenjutsu study experience there. So we yeah. did some of the kenjutsu, did some of the aedo, and then some cutting in this big old Japanese garden, which was fantastic. Was that kendo? No, so it's kenjutsu. So using using the proper swords. So the swords that we were cutting with is about six, seven hundred years old, which is quite fantastic. And it's been in this wow. place forever. Awesome. I imagine. Look, I don't know. I've never had a sword in my hand that old. You could feel the difference, which is what you held it, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it felt quite strange because Japanese people are small now, but back then they were tiny. So that sword's designed for a man that's all of four foot eleven. So for a two-handed sword, it kind of carries like a machete. Right. Did it affect how you swung it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm a relatively big guy. I'm I'm six four, so holding that what's meant to be a two handed sword, feeling to me like a butter knife, but it was fantastic. <laughs> so you just had to make whatever adjustments to make it work out, I guess. So. Exactly, but I mean, it felt beautifully balanced. It's sharp as well you can imagine. I mean, the guy cut it through five of of those rolled tatami mats. Each one of those, the thickness of say a human's thigh bone, so it's got a thick piece of wood rolled in wet tatami. So it's meant to simulate a human shoulder or thigh bone, and the, the fellow running the experience, he cuts through all five like nothing. You know, most pretty big guys struggle to do two. You can knock them over, you can crack them in half, but to slice them and keep them standing is, is, is really tough going. You were able to do that? I was able to do that, which was good, and I managed to get it filmed as well, and I just didn't want to live with the eternal shame of being filmed. <laughs> Disappointment in the eyes of... <laughs> Right. What would you have Not done if you'd, if you'd have done it and you fuck fell short of the glory of God? <laughs> exactly. All this way around the world to fuck it up right to now. Fuck it up. <laughs> right. God damn it. Do you get a second shot if you mess it up? It's a one and you're done. I know, but the Japanese people are so polite that they drag out a fuck off so long. So if you fuck it up, they'll be so polite. They'll just allow you to keep fucking it up over and over again okay. some of the other people there were just useless and it took hours to let them get through that mat it was like watching beginner's surgery so i was pleased they didn't go too bad for me tommy how did this all get organized someone's helped you get all of these training events in the diary right i went through quite a specialist travel agent because as you can imagine this is pretty niche holiday fair right no doubt for the most tech country in the world everything's old school everything's introductions and phone calls and letters before you even get the opportunity to do anything. Um, so I had big plans of going to do other things as well. I'm quite active in judo. I wanted to go do some of the university judo, which is like a big scene over there. But it would have taken me months of introductions just to get onto a normal university judo map. It's mad. How did you find someone who could organize this whole trip? Well, luckily, I mean, a company called Japan Journeys, but they, they just, they've all lived in Japan. They know the protocol. They know the approach. And there's enough weird people in the West that want to go to Japan and live out their Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle dreams that apparently there's demand for it. How long were you there for? Two and a half weeks. 
Um, so it's quite a long time, wonderful place. And I would absolutely go back. I'd love to go back to a full training experience there, just do, do the whole thing, pure training, um, which I think I'll do going again. So it was worth everything. It was everything you met and lived up to your expectations, I'm assuming. Absolutely. I mean, what I, what I loved about it, kind of martially speaking, is how everything's so precise. Everything's precise. Where you take your shoes off, how you fold your jacket. You could buy the cheapest piece of tourist hat in the world and they'll hand it to you as reverently as you just bought an antique. Now, everything has peace and purpose, which is, which is wonderful. Are you into like the sort of philosophical side, the mysticism around martial arts? You know, Japan has that aura about it, which is really interesting to a lot of us Westerners. I like it academically. So I like the idea of Zen and how people can apply Zen in their fighting and they can have no conscious thoughts in their mind. And in abstract, I think it's quite good. You know, I, I buy into the theory. I've competed enough in a lot of heavy contact sports and either I'm missing a big Zen trick or every time I fight, I'm always scared shitless and thinking a million things. And I can't think of many sane humans that aren't excited or scared shitless when they're about to fight. So while I, I buy into the Japanese philosophies and the fighting philosophies, I think applying them practically, I don't know if anyone ever does. I, I think these are things that, say, real Japanese warriors would feel the same thing as people going into a, a boxing ring would. You'd be crazy not to be afraid and have your mind zapping in all those directions but there's something quite beautiful about them in abstract i would say and i really love the japanese religion of shinto like the nature worship trees have spirits and rocks have spirits you know i really buy into into that stuff what is a very good philosophy and what manifests itself in japanese martial arts is that full commitment there's no there's no maybe in japan at all you know you either do a thing or you don't do a thing so everything is kind of complete full attack the kenjutsu schools compared to like western fencing schools you go in but there's almost a, a disregard for safety which is which is quite nice but also insane right that's pretty cool yeah live swords and all that my brother lived in japan for two years and he studied kendo out there and i didn't realize that the difference was i guess live swords versus stick that's the thing with kendo i mean so much of it is about your ki your shout and just one solid thwack with that stick it's as martially as unsound as you could hope for because there's so many double hits. You both hit each other with what, if it was sharp, would kill both of you, which is quite a, a uniquely Japanese way of looking at things. A mutual suicide. Exactly. You do a lot of like very realistic stuff over here, right? What stuff have you taken back from that trip you're going to apply to your training over here? Oh, good question. I think what I will take back is the different pace when Japanese people instruct, you'll be doing one thing and that one thing might be three hours of you doing that one thing. This one cut, which anatomically you'll get in three goes. If you're not a completely disorganized person, you'll get the idea of what that cut is or what that strike is pretty fast. But in Japan, it doesn't even matter. You just keep doing that cut. You do that cut. You do that cut. I can appreciate that. I tend to throw a lot of material at my students when I teach. So if I teach a seminar, if I'm teaching my class, you know, I will write three hours of lesson plan for an hour and a half lesson every time, unfailingly. And I have done every time for the past 10 years because you get excited as an instructor. You know, what strikes me is Japanese instructors don't get excited. They're like, right, you're doing this cut today and we'll do it tomorrow. And next week we're doing that cut. And next month we're also doing that cut. And I can see how that's very good for quality control. 
I think you're right. You know, when in America and in the West, it's how much do you know? Show me another move. Show me the next knife move. Show me the next self-defense or the arm bar, whatever it might be. It's information overload. People go, I got it. I got it. I recognize it is what Tackett says. You don't really have it. You don't really know it. And when you slow it down, like you said, going over there, I can really appreciate that. Doing that one thing for three hours, you will get magnificent at it if you're not a complete knucklehead, obviously. But I don't know if it would fly out in the West, though. It's a pay-to-play culture here. And I think people like to collect techniques, as you said. People love the idea of acquiring knowledge, acquiring things. It's not to say there's a bad quality, because I think you can pick up good quality. But what it does do in the Japanese systems, I think it brings the whole class with you. If you throw a lot of things at people, the good people will just get it, and you'll end up with a, a small group of really good guys. Because they have such good commitment to singular techniques over there, you could bring a whole class of 30 people up to a relatively good standard pretty equally. So I think for like mass group instruction, it's also a pretty effective technique. And when you do a seminar, of course, that is a different animal. They're there to get to meet you and you give them ideas, introduce new thought processes and so on and so forth. I don't believe, at least how I teach a seminar, is that they're going to really get anything. At the end of that summer, other than, oh, look at all this cool shit, and I'll try it, and I'll go back and practice it. I don't think you can expect them to master it in that four hours you have them. No, and I always used to be that seminar guy with the phone and the notepads and doing all that stuff. And I realized after hundreds of seminars that I'd never go back to those things anyway. So I might as well forget. Yeah. And just enjoy the bloody seminar. Who can fucking read what you wrote down? Yeah. <laughs> what you were thinking. It's too much complex information to write down when my left leg's, especially when you start grappling, you got no chance. No one can, you know, there's a reason why there are no good erotic novels about wrestling. You know, you can't really describe it. It's an indescribable thing. Yeah, I have to say, I used to take notes early on in my martial arts days and, and I found I didn't look back at them. It doesn't work for me. I do admire people that do it, but I, what I try to do is just capture a few little gems. You, and it might be more something that you say that I think that's brilliant more than something that you do where, like you say, I try to write down moving my left foot here and whatever that movement may be. Absolutely. I think a lot of the places record these seminars now, but again, it's just not the same as that live experience. I always treat, I mean, I remember the great uh, Inosanto quote. He says he always teaches seminars like he's chucking a bucket of water at people. Some of it will go straight on the floor. Some of it will go on you. And I don't really care which. (laughs) And I think that's quite a nice, refreshing philosophy to have. Love that. You said you've been teaching for 10 years. You're quite a young guy. How did you get into martial arts? It's a big thing in my family. So it, you know, most of the guys in my family have, have studied, have done something. So boxing's very big in my family. Karate systems, judo systems. So it, it's all there for me anyway, to begin with. They knew that they were having a ginger child, so they thought they'd better get me in early. If you want to survive as a ginger, you got to get punching people in the face. So that was me. So yeah, I, I started martial arts when I was five. Boxing gyms, mostly, in my particular instance. Boxing gyms here are a bit like daycare in that you know, a ragtag bunch of kids can be dropped off at any boxing gym in the UK at about four o'clock and not be picked up till nine o'clock. And it only costs about £2.50 because they're so cheap. So if anyone's listening and wants a cheap way of childminding, boxing gyms. Yeah, true, true. It's true. The, the old fellas just stop you fucking around and you get pretty good at punching stuff pretty fast. Or getting punched. Or getting punched. We do sometimes talk about the difference between 
combat sports like boxing and the kind of traditional values associated with martial arts you I guess you were doing both if you found that sort of paradigm in action I have to say that when both are at the top of their game they're more similar than they are different so if I go to a really good judo club or a really good karate club or a really good jiu-jitsu club or compare it to a really good boxing gym the ethos is the same the ethics the same the culture of people and the kind of people that go there are the same so I, I think the difference is there are a lot more of the traditional schools which means the margin for error the schools that aren't very good and the approaches that aren't very good are just more common just through sheer force of numbers i had a pretty good lucky start in that you know as traditional martial arts go you can't go too far in, wrong with judo because you know on your first lesson you're grabbing each other you're throwing each other you're wrestling around all of the things that traditional martial arts get hammered for judo kind of survives because it it does those things you know striking aside and um, so my first three arts which was a pretty good lucky dip for me were boxing judo and shutter cam nice that's a pretty decent starter kit for me and i did those for about 10 years the shutter cam went by the wayside the boxing and judo stayed and have stayed with me forever and then lots of different martial arts have, have come in in between so big big passion and perhaps of mine is savat which is a french kickboxing system um so that you guys still there? The cameras have gone a bit crazy. Yeah, yeah, we can see you. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. we're here, we're here. <laughs> we just hung up on you. That's fine. So Savat's quite cool. I've been doing Savat for about 12 years. It's essentially a kickboxing system where you have your boots on. So you've got your shoes on, and they're a little bit hardened at the front. So you think like a boxing boot with like a hardened rubber toe. And essentially you are kickboxing with it, but you, you can really be pinpoint because you've got those shoes on. So full contact system, absolutely love it. So that's the system I spend a lot of my time playing with and engaging with. Catch wrestling as well. So I've been catch wrestling a long time. That's undergone a bit of a renaissance now. And I really enjoy that because I like to be nasty. You know, I, I like Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I like judo, but I really like the kind of pain and pressure of catch. And that just struck a chord with me. Catch had more of a resurgence in the U.S., even though it is from the U.K. It's very tough to find out there. It is tough to find. So one of the benefits that I've got is through my fencing work. So there's, there's something called HEMA, which yes. is historical European martial arts, right? And essentially, that's dog brothers with swords, if you want to put it in the easiest possible way. So people, people reconstructing and fighting with medieval European weaponry. And that's really up my street. I'm a proper big history nerd. And so I've, I've been doing that a good while, too. But as part of that community... There's a good tranche of people looking at unarmed systems. So historical in our unarmed systems from Europe, of which catch is one and catch is very popular. So through that community, I found lots of good wrestlers in gyms you could never find, gyms that just don't have a Facebook, gyms that don't factor on Google, which is mad. And so essentially going from different coach to coach. What I do find now is you've got the rise of mega gyms. You know, Snake Pit has always been an amazing gym, but it's now commercialized gym it's a franchise you know it's taken around the world it does big seminars there are so many big catch seminars out there but at first you know there's, there's there was a couple of people doing it that are rather good and i also think when it started it was more greco with nasty bits than it ever was proper catch wrestling or freestyle wrestling with a couple of submission holds i think now it's starting to become full circle and be be the catch it was historically which is exciting 
But I'm loving its renaissance. I think it's good. I do think that in terms of sophistication, BJHL is, is still is still going to hold the mantle for that because sheer numbers of coaches, the quality control is much better. There's far more people competing, which keeps techniques very valid and very current. But I'm hoping that as catch gets more popular, it will start to be seen in a lot more submission wrestling tournaments, uh, a lot higher frequency. But I really enjoy it. I love mainly the pain-based reactions of, of the items. You know, it's it's less passive. And I think the atmosphere of a catch class is different. It can all be a bit too bro in a in a BJJ <laughs> class. There's lots of slapping <laughs> and chat and just everybody just talking about diet and nice things and shit music. You know, whereas... So, so I was... It's just cauliflower ears, dickheads, and pain, and I like that. Right. I like, yeah. That's so true. I was teaching a catch class the other night. I've been doing catch forever, and there's a lot of BJJ guys, and we teach BJJ at my gym as well. And I was doing something. It was pretty nasty. It looks cool as can be. And one guy goes, "Well, can you do that in in, in the UFC or in a tournament?" And I looked at him like Clint Eastwood. And go, I don't give a fuck if you can do it. My job is to teach you how to win this fight. If you can't do it in that event, guess what? You just don't do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what I love about catch wrestling and what I love about boxing is the complete lack of foreplay that you get in other martial arts. There's no smoke talk. You go to like a normal martial arts class and about two-thirds of it is, is some accountant telling you about what he's doing this weekend or where he's going. There's a complete lack of niceness in most catch and boxing gyms, which really appeals. I like the nice stuff afterwards. Very true, very true. What is Bartitsu? And hopefully I'm saying that right. Yeah. It's the world's shittest named martial art. I have to tell you that is a terrible, <laughs> terrible name. So Bartitsu, essentially, there's a guy in the 1890s called Edward William Barton Wright. And he was already a pretty decent boxer. And he was already a pretty decent stick fighter and already a pretty decent savater, someone that does sabat. And he goes over to Japan at a time where no one goes over to Japan. You know, at that time, Japan had only just been open to the West as a railway engineer. And he goes over there and he learns pretty old school Koryu Jiu-Jitsu. And Barton Wright gets, gets pretty good at it because back then your training is, is every day. and It's very committed. So whilst he was only over there for two, three years, he gets very good at it and he adds it to what he does. And he takes that combination of his boxing, his sabat, his stick fighting and his Jiu-Jitsu back to London that's going through its biggest moral panic, moral crisis it's ever had. So at that time, gentlemen of the period were seen as untouchable. And it was starting to be that pretty hard guys that were living in London realised you can punch a gentleman in his face, nick his watch and have a very good time doing so. And you know, social boundaries were being crossed. And so, so Barton Wright, he opens this school, a very expensive school in London, and he invites some of Europe's best and toughest instructors to that school. And essentially opens up the, the school of, of arms physical culture. So the Bartitsu Club essentially was built on a combat sports model. So he had catch wrestlers. He had active boxers. He had active saboteurs. He had guys working in fencing. And they all came together to teach in this club. And they taught for a number of years. Then, because he charged too much, his club died. So he'd written down all this approach and this philosophy and training methodology. His club died and the art kind of died with him. And it underwent a resurgence in the mid-80s. And people trying to piece it together. A good thing about Bartitsu is there's so much literature 
available. So we're lucky that a lot of the arts that make up Bartitsu are still around and still very popular. Boxing, wrestling, savat, cane fighting, fencing, all those things, they're still here, they're still prevalent. But there's a huge amount of written literature. So both from him and his articles in magazines through to other kind of peers of his, other people of the time writing that kind of stuff. So there's a big revivalist movement for Bartitsu around the world. Uh, and here I am doing rather uniquely a lot of the arts that make it up. So there's not many people out there doing savat, doing boxing, doing Western fencing, doing catch. It's a rather strange combination of things to be doing. It's not very, not very mainstream as a martial arts bundle. And, and so I decided to set up my own Bartitsu club. There's lots all around the world. I've been speaking to a lot of the other instructors that have been around the block a while, like James Marwood. And it just seemed like the right time and right thing to do. What I like about it is that it essentially follows a similar model as, as MMA. I've got MMA with weapons, essentially. Um, and the boxing focus of it is all around bare-knuckle boxing, which is undergoing a massive resurgence. So uh, a lot of my work training in boxing now is working with guys that just fight bare-knuckle. There's a huge amount of money, huge amount of media coverage in bare-knuckle boxing now. And, and, and Bartitsu is built around bare-knuckle boxing. And it's so fundamentally different from normal boxing, it's in, insane. It might as well be. It's like comparing you know, tennis and squash. It's a, it's a different game of different speed, yeah, different technique. It's hugely different. Do you prefer um, one over the other? Would you prefer bare knuckle versus that? They're just completely unique and you enjoy both equally. It's tough. So modern bare knuckle boxing is normal boxing without the gloves on. Right? right. So the boxing you'll see at you know a BKB show will be normal boxers, just in their hand wraps, punching each other. And don't know what to do. <laughs> busting their hands on each other's hands. Busting their hands, something rotten. But then you look at the different rule sets of, of, of bare knuckle boxing then. So the London prize ring. You know, everybody's only ever punching with a vertical fist. There's fewer punches thrown. There's a lot more interesting grapples. You know, the round system's different. Where you're targeting people, where you're punching people's different. You know, the lack of hooks is different. It's a whole other species of game. So I really do love that. And I hope, I really hope, and one of my ambitions, if it doesn't exist, is to try and make it exist, is to get prize ring pugilism back in the game. If one can legally bare knuckle box, I would quite like to see it under its older rule set performed. I think it'd be more entertaining as a spectator sport as well. There are a lot of stoppages in modern bare knuckle boxing because people are fucking up their hands. Because they're punching in a way that's designed for a boxing glove fist. You know, if you imagine you hold a boxing glove fist, you're essentially making a clamshell motion. You know, your thumb is never tucked. It's never really a proper fist. And that's a hard habit to break if you're not punching things bare knuckle. It's one of the reasons I quite like to train with some of the Kyokushin Karate guys as well. At least they are used to punching each other bare knuckle. There's a lot to be learned from guys that have been doing that a good while. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited about the future of bare knuckle boxing. Um, I'm getting more and more of guys come to me for it, um, but it's also getting so much more mainstream. Uh, so I, I kind of I, I see that also being a big part of of Bartitsu going forward. How did you find Bartitsu? It's part of the periphery of that Hema scene. So the people that are into the swords and the historical fencing, you know, it's always been on the cusp of that particular scene. But on that particular scene, it's predominantly done by nerds. 
So, <laughs> so true. Yeah. 100% true. I was invited to a thing called Combat On. It's in yeah. Vegas. It's historical European martial arts. And I went out there and I taught it modern hand-to-hand stuff and, and did modern knife stuff. And you are 100% right. I even looked at some of the competition going, I bet you I could beat everybody at what they're doing because there wasn't too many athletes, at least a couple of years ago. So I'm just concurring as to what you're saying. Is I agree correct. with that. But then I've had a few, I've trained with a few HEMA guys who've really impressed me. And I'm trying to get David Rowlings on the show who's like one of the UK's leading ones, which I'm trying to arrange that uh, soon. A, a guy, Adrian, who I do Arnest with, he's, he's fantastic. So it's probably two sides of the coin. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I love a lot of the HEMA guys. But I think one of the endemic problems is that you are hitting each other with large bits of steel, and that requires substantial padding. And so you get guys that are they're very good at hitting each other. They do each other bloody hard, but they're in use to physical stress and pain. Like, it does hurt when you're getting hit with the Hema gear on. You know, I, I long sword fence. I've, I've, everything Hema guys do, I've done. But it's not the same pain as someone face barring you, cranking your neck punching your face in front of your mom and your wife and your friends in the audience. So it's different. It's different pain. And totally fear. different. Uh, and, and so, yeah, essentially through the HEMA community, uh, I got exposed to Bartitsu. But there I am thinking, none of you guys have, A, ever fought a human being, or not many of you ever have. And I look at Bartitsu, it's founded by guys that are tough dudes. So, you know, historic Bartitsu is by guys that are essentially fighting on the show hall circuit so they're going to different exhibitions different circuses different lunchtime shows and they're wrestling and they're wrestling people all day they're boxing all day they're doing essentially the novelty acts of the time like right let's put a boxer against a wrestler let's put a stick fighter against a fencer you know all the all these acts of the time these are these are tough guys tough combat combat sport specialists and so I started to look at Bartitsu a bit differently. I thought I could bring something to this particular scene that's a bit more real. That's a bit more grounded in hitting each other really hard. And, and that's, that's what I did. So my particular type of Bartitsu, for, for want of a better way to phrase it, is I hope a bit more aligned to the original in that I attract more combat sport athlete kind of guys. I get my wrestlers, I get my boxers, I get them doing things that are Bartitsu, but these are guys that would be tough in, in, in other sports too. A lot of the other HEMA schools, they're guys that like to do it essentially a bit like Victorian role play in a way, in the same way that a lot of people that go to Japanese martial arts club, they like to put on the hakama, they like to put on the gi, they like the whole process of that, they like the whole theatre of it. And so I, I see a split. You know, the art's too niche for it to have a big schism, but there are definitely people that like to do it for its historical interest, and they like to dress up and play with it, and that's cool. And there are people like me, and I think there are more people like me now, that want to showcase that that particular combination of styles with that particular philosophy actually works pretty well. Um, and so, so I really enjoy that. I find that exciting. The fact that it's you're doing some british stuff so, so i tend to think of like martial arts as being like an asian oriental endeavor and you're focused on victorian british french whether it's wrestling to that boxing is that being proved to be really popular with your guys 
I, I don't think it's as nationalistic as that. So I don't think people are like, oh, this is this isn't the foreign stuff. This is good old Yorkshire pudding, John <laughs> Smith bitter kind of martial arts. I can I can buy into this. There's definitely a bit of that lurking in the scene. I, I won't lie to you, especially on the Hamer scene. There are a couple of nutters that are really into that nationalistic nonsense. But there is something charming and and nice about looking at things that are from a place that you're from. You know that that is of course. Yeah, yeah. There, there is a there is a certain charm to that. I have to say, what is quite interesting is that it's a lot more aligned to the psychology and the physiology of a Western person. You know, it's hard for me as a big guy to fight as a small judoka, and there are there are a lot of techniques that just do not work as a bigger guy. And the same with you know, if you're fencing in a Japanese style, it's not massively conducive to you know. You can't use your natural advantages. If you're a big guy with long arms, the way of Japanese fencing isn't particularly useful to you. Whereas Western fencing, it is. I can have a very long lunge and I can hit you from a mile away. You know, so there are things that are in Western culture and in more Western body types, which naturally suit the arts that are in Bartitsu. You know, that, I'd say that's relatively fair. But outside of it being vaguely nice that it's from the UK, I don't see a big national thing with it, to be honest. Fair enough. I wanted to ask you as well about that, the 52 block seminar. Oh, the 52 block seminar. How did that go? What, how, what did you get out of that? Oh, that was wonderful. So I basically, uh, I did a Wayne's World. Uh, it didn't exist, so I built it and they came. What I did, there's a guy called Light Burley in the US and while he's as mad as a box of frogs, he's very good at what he does, teaching 52 blocks. And so if people don't know it, it's essentially an American prison-based system of, of boxing, or probably better phrases, anti-boxing. A lot of it's kind of elbow cover-based. It's kind of fist destruction-based. So if people have seen things like the Casey fighting method or you know a lot of the other Filipino boxing systems, it's like that with more ghetto names. And that's probably the best way to phrase it. Right, it is. <laughs> um, How did you find 52? Well, I've known about it for quite a long time, being there. I discovered it a while back. I never did anything with it, just kind of was aware of it. How did you discover this? So I, I found it essentially through the bare knuckle boxing. So a lot wow. of the origin story of 52 blocks is from uh, something called the chitling circuit. So the chitling circuit in the US was essentially where slaves were made to box each other, you know, without prettifying it too much. And there's a whole circuit and there's a whole kind of, I say ethos, but a, but a history to it and how those particular you know, African boxers did things slightly differently and how that may have manifested itself into 52 blocks. Now that could be complete bullshit or not, but as you do with YouTube, you find yourself down a rabbit hole and I find oh, myself in, in like Burley's corner looking at some of the stuff he does. And I, I liked the philosophy of the man. Like I like that he goes to shitty parks in New York and trains in climbing frames. You know, I, I love the idea. They're just, they're so scummy and you're in this kind of closed off environment where there's things that you can bang your head off and, Without intending to, I think he's, he's he kind of made something very interesting as a as a training apparatus. You know, he goes to a kids park, has these guys spar in and around a massive climbing frame, and it kind of works. So I, I liked his approach. I could also see how it works. You know, I'm a I'm a lifelong Filipino martial artist too, so I can kind of get the anti-boxing stuff and use of the elbows and, and what have you. Um, so I really liked it. There's none of it in the UK. But he did train, a guy flew over there, a guy called Dink the Professor, brilliant name for an instructor of anything. 
he's up in Newcastle. So I decided two things. I've got a lot of students that are police officers. And one of my, one of my police officer students managed to get me access to Steelhouse Steel Lane, which is a, an old Victorian prison in the middle of Birmingham. And it looks awful. I mean, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant prison, but you'd never want to stay there. It is the worst thing in the world. So I managed to get that booked out. I brought Dink down. And essentially, I just made the seminar happen. What I did do for the seminar is 52 blocks is predominantly normal boxing plus the blocks. So I made sure that we started this seminar. I did a, it did a piece on punching bare fist to begin with. So I wanted to cover with the guys attending. If you're going to punch like you do in normal boxing against a, against a face, your hand might lose. So here are some things you might want to do. So I made sure to cover some of the more Bartitsu pugilism boxing to open the show there. And then, then handed over to David to do his stuff. But doing it in the prison cells was fantastic. So I had multiple attackers, small spaces, stairways. Every conceivable hazard about being in a hard-ass prison made the seminar very, very interesting. Fighting multiples in a space that's two metres by two metres is really interesting. Fighting on stairs is really interesting. Fighting in a prison kitchen is really interesting. So I loved it. I, I would happily do it again. I think we'll turn it into an annual thing. Uh, but it's good fun. I think that's great. Yeah, and just being in the prison cells is just scary because they're big old thick doors. Just getting the idea that as soon as that thick heavy door's closed and you're with two other people, how scary that could be. So, you know, I, I'm really into the psychology of training too, so I'd like to put those guys in there. And we'd close and lock the door, and these are big old Victorian prison doors. If that lock breaks off, I'm going to have to call some heavy-duty machinery to get you out. Focuses the mind to your sparring. That sounds like a good time. I like it. Yeah, good fun. I mean, if I was to do it again, I would love to do things uh, introducing weapon-based stuff. I think that'd be really interesting, kind of knife seminars and so on. I think that using that environment was really interesting because it causes a psychological shift in people. Yeah, Most people that do martial arts are, are nice, normal people, and they're like lawyers and accountants, and you know they're normally wonderfully middle class and boring. So, but you know, you you put those guys in a in a prison cell, and they start to get a bit scared and jumpy and nervy, and they find it strange. Right. And that makes it more real. Oh, without a doubt, I can only imagine. <laughs> it translated well to like civilian use. You don't have to like have a shank to do it. Yeah, ex- exactly. And you know, it, it brought out my inner sadist that the stuff I was getting those guys to do, I turned into like, some kind of bizarre psychopathic prison officer for the experience. I'm like, right, three of you get in there, <laughs> you know, punch each other in the face to get out. That's funny. People pay for this stuff, huh? <laughs> pay for it. I know it's awesome. <laughs> you have to fuck with them and they're paying for you <laughs> <laughs> and, but yeah the, the, the names are, are mad there's not 52 blocks there's probably about 30 odd and then they, they do them right and left which is a brilliant marketing ploy I applaud that but it is an interesting system it's a system where you, you need to have something else to plug into it so you couldn't just do it it doesn't own any strikes of its own it doesn't really own any grapples of its own I would see it like a, a good module to add to your striking arsenal for self-defense. But also, it doesn't really align itself to sports-based fighting in that if, and I think, I think Dave would go with me on this, Dave the Professor, if we jumped in a boxing ring, box holes in him because it's a different game. But against a concerted attack, someone just trying to punch your face off with the kind of the different rhythm that that entails, I can see it being very effective. They're very good, essentially, oh shit covers until you get your bearings and can throw something back. I think as a system, it is interesting, but it's better 
done in self-defense than it is in boxing. And it only really works when people are making a concerted, proper attack on you. you know, if, if you start to spar it, I think it falls apart. Yeah. Which is a shame. You know, you, you love to be able to spar stuff, but some stuff just doesn't spar well at all. Who are your FMA influences? Oh, good question. Good question. I'm really enjoying the, the bladed elements of Filipino martial arts. I find that a lot of clubs get really, really tied into just the stick, just the double stick. So I'm really drawn to arts that kind of retain the bladed element. Um, so what the Sayok Kali guys are doing, for example, I think it's really important. You know, your, your stick is a, is a vector. It's an, an imaginary machete. And I think if you get too into the stick, you potentially lose some of the combative principles of the arts. So I do enjoy Arnis. I do enjoy his screamer. I think that the state of unarmed Filipino martial arts can be quite poor at times. A lot of people have kind of kung fu sized their Filipino martial arts. There's a lot of people doing you know hours and hours and hours of tappy tappy drills and flow drills. And I think you know they're not massively conducive to good fighting, good self-defense. But yeah, some of the longer bladed Eskrima stuff I think is fantastic. But I love to play with it. What I am a big fan of is what Danny Sullivan's doing with his uh, Fighting Arts International. So he's kind of blended Thai with Filipino boxing and a few other things. And, and that really appeals. You know, I can see the science behind that and I can see where he's got rid of some of the, the shit, essentially, and, and made it work. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of all Filipino systems and how playful they are and how irreverent they are. You know, I like it that in a Filipino system, if it doesn't work, that's cool. It's not really wrong with the system. It's just not right for you. I, I like that they're happy to add things to it, get rid of things. I think that's a really healthy way to operate martial arts. I wanted to ask what your training regime looked like. My training regime, at the moment, I'm boxing twice a week. So that's normal boxing. And again, that's me as a boxer. So I like to separate me as an instructor and me as a martial artist. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that you don't lose both lives. It would be like being in a marriage, having kids and forgetting you're still in a marriage. You've got to be able to keep both sides up. You, you sure. as the training person and you as the trainer of people. So for me, boxing twice a week, typically a grappling art. So for me, often, more often than not, it's judo, although I do like to go back into the catch once a week. And then it'll be a weapons fest or a fencing system once a week from there. So at the moment, I've, I've gone back into this screamer with the Babakan guys. But every weekend, I will be doing some sort of fencing-based system. So that could be saber, it could be foil, it could be bloody longsword with the Hema guys. It could be any number of things. But predominantly, without fail, every week, it's still that boxing, still that judo. And it still means instructing the Bartitsu, uh, which I do to a large class. And then I tend to have privates in the Filipino boxing stuff. So I normally do that with guys that are just in it for the immediate off-the-shelf self-defense. So they don't really want the long-tail learning of techniques in a class. They just want good, rough-and-ready, grappling, striking, de-escalation, the usual reality-based self-defense stuff. What does teaching mean to you? It's a bloody good excuse to learn lots of stuff. So when you're just training for you, you just do the things you enjoy. When I'm teaching other people, I have to factor in that I'm a big guy and I like to hit at range. And I, I will hit 
out of range, and then I'll do a big slam or a big throw. Like, you know, I'll do, you know, I'll go from jab cross into a suplex into a neck crank, and I'll love that, and I'll do that for the rest of my life if I can. But for some people, that's just an impossibility for what they can do. Right. And when you're responsible for training people, I have to look at, right, how does a short guy do this? How does a fat guy do this? How does an old guy do this? How does that 16-year-old girl do this? And that means I need to spend more time looking at stuff and exploring it and probing it. And that makes the art richer to me because I have to look at other people's perspective of it and, and use my brain and solve problems on their behalf and bring something to the table that's good to them. I referenced earlier that you seem very articulate and, and I saw that you'd posted something on Facebook where you were doing some sort of business development training. I think it was like your purpose is your brand. Is that something new, to, new for you? No, it's not something new. So uh, my, my day job, my nine to five, is I'm a, I'm a creative director in an advertising agency. So my job is to come up with ideas for, for big brands and turn them into things that sell. So working for luxury cars, clothing, shopping, banks, all manner of things. So I end up speaking a lot at those things. But what's quite nice, I think, is that with the martial arts, I do get the ability to be more confident in a room. You know, I can be in a room pitching to quite powerful people. I do a lot of adverts for Lloyd's Banking Group, you know, one of the world's largest banks with some scary guys. But if you know that you can smash each guy's face in in that room, you get a lot more confident with pitching your ideas. Oh, yeah. It's a strange thing, but I think with physical competence, if you can handle yourself physically, even in scenarios that don't need it, you're a lot more confident and people buy into you. People buy into the confidence of someone that is physically capable. So I do really believe that martial arts are a really good way of helping your business life too, because people see you're you're, you're a stand-up person you know you know what you mean and you've got some good principles behind you you know in the industry that i'm in it's easy for people to try and shut you down scare you you know you're an agency people try and hustle you and so if you're a strong person and you don't fade in front of that it's really helpful what's the transition back the other way so how does your business stuff influence your martial arts you do get a lot of techniques. So, for example, with, with how you market yourself and how you, how you share experiences with others, like how you use social media, how you operate events and invite people to events, you know, that's all very, very useful. I also think I look at things like this. My business is selling things to other people, and therefore I need to find the best features and, and market them. And it's the same with martial arts. I need to look at a syllabus. And um, with Bartitsu, I've got license to kind of make my own syllabus. Now I've got to pick the things that, A, I believe are useful and practical for people, but B, things that people want to buy and that they're looking for. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a buyer's market. So you'd be a fool in martial arts not to do the things that people are most interested in. So, for example, a lot of people really love bare knuckle boxing and people really love catch wrestling. So it's important that I make those elements really visible to people without neglecting elements that should be there too, like the jujitsu, like the savat, which are less popular, but still very important. And so it allows me to put a kind of a marketing mind behind things. And with with, uh, Bartitsu, it's an art that needs explanation. People don't naturally know what it is. So I need to make sure I use those skills to get it across simply for people so they can understand it and not think of it as just some historical oddity. 
you seem like a big character, like in the way you dress, you're obviously like influenced by that Victorian stuff. You, you, you seem very charismatic. Do you see yourself ever doing anything like ending up on Peaky Blinders or something like that? But funny enough, I, I did apply. So I, I did an audition for Peaky Blinders for the last season because there was a big boxing element in it. And obviously being just up the road from me in Birmingham and I can, if I need to, I can pull off the accent. It does knock around the family. But sadly for me, I got to the audition. They were like, right, we want this um, boxer from a Jewish gang with dark hair. And me being a bald, pasty ginger man, I just didn't fit the bill of 1920s Jewish Italian boxer. <laughs> <laughs> So sadly, on that occasion, I didn't get through. I would have thought they would have been able to just stick a wig and some makeup on, you know? No, I mean, my tan level is too far off. I mean, the skin colouring I needed to cover the tattoos in Japan, the colour match for me was moon, literally moon. I am moon coloured. <laughs> what are your sort of goals and objectives in martial arts? Where do you want to get to with this stuff? I would love to go more into film and theatre. So... A couple of months ago, I had the stunt team that look after the Kingsman movies come to my class. And they were shooting the, the next Kingsman film, which is set in, in the same time period. And so they wanted to look at some of the techniques and approaches and, and how they could do that on film. So they gave me different things like the sizes of characters, the backgrounds of characters, how they look and how they feel. And they asked me to come up with the, with the techniques. And that was really interesting to do that kind of film choreography stuff. I've written a Bartitsu book designed as a training manual. So it's not much fluff. It is essentially anyone that's pretty good at those arts can pick that up and, and roll that art out if they're so inclined. So that's currently going through its final editing and proofing process. And a lot more international seminars. I've done a lot of the big UK seminars. So I've done Kaizen, I've done the martial arts show. Now I do a lot of big seminars. I'll be doing a seminar every couple of weeks. Um, but I would, I would love to do more on an international scale. I'm looking forward to that. I do get a lot of invites, and, uh, and now I need to start choosing the ones that are right to go to. But that's very exciting for me. And yeah, just keep putting the art out there. I'll still compete. I'll still box a couple of times this year, still compete in a couple of the grappling tournaments. But I'll start to probably wind down the competition and up the teaching seminars, I think. Awesome. I'm really happy we got you on the show. Really articulate, interesting guy. I could see you'd studied so much stuff, so I knew we were going to get some gems tonight, but really happy. Thank you ever so much for being on the show. No worries for Enjoyed it. How can everyone reach you, Tommy? Um, so the best way is through Facebook, mate. Facebook, and that's the group, the Bartitsu Lab. Yeah, the Bartitsu Lab, Tommy that's Joe absolutely Moore. fine. Best way to get hold of me. And your website is theartofmore.co.uk. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I was probably a bit tired when I got that URL, but I've done it now. So I'm just going to go with it. Cool. Okay. Thanks for being on the show. Primal Radio. Peace out. No worries, mate. have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.